Welcome back. It's CFB Winning Edge, the podcast edition. I'm your host, Scott Bogman, and I am joined, as always, by Xavier Trish. Follow him on the Twitter at Xavier underscore Trish, T-R-I-C-H-E, and Nicholas Ian Allen, the owner and proprietor of CFB Winning Edge, at CFB Winning Edge, on the Twitter for him. Nick, what's going on? You staying healthy? Everything good over in your neck of the woods? I try and try my best, and uh, like probably just about everybody else out there, uh, anticipating the NFL draft. It's uh, I've, I've definitely been tuned into it more this year than in uh, previous years. I always always watch it, but uh, this year I'm I'm a little bit more uh, involved, I guess. So looking looking forward to that starting uh, Thursday night. How about you guys? I think this is going to be the most watched NFL draft in the history of drafts, right, Xavier? Because it's like the one thing going on. No baseball games, no basketball playoffs, no nothing else. Right. Um, it's going to be awesome. Uh, it's going to be our first version of live sports. I mean, outside of the WNBA draft, which happened earlier uh, last week. It's going to be an amazing spectacle. I'm just hoping that there's not too many technical errors. Uh, there's nothing's going to be funnier, though, than Twitter's reaction to Roger Goodell just standing there as the pit comes in and not knowing what's going on. Uh, he already gets enough slander as it is. So more fun. I, I saw the Bud Light is doing Boo the Commish. I, I feel like he had to approve that, right? Because aren't they an uh, NFL sponsor, Bud Light? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. I, I, I assume that was uh, uh, he, he probably was involved or, you know, at least gave the gave the go ahead. Yeah, he had to get the okay there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, uh, that was um, it, it was a little surprising to me. But, I mean, look, when you get paid $40 bucks a year, uh, you should be able to be booed. You know, that's kind of it's kind of why he gets paid so much. And so he can be the guy to kind of take the brunt for a lot of the stuff going on that people don't like. But, uh, Nick, a little more involved in the NFL draft. You said you always watch it. Um, so what what are your thoughts on it this year? I mean... Uh, I feel like, and I'm going to be streaming over on In This League uh, all three days uh, of the draft. So this is, I uh, in Joe Pizapia's black book, I write up the rookies. And, uh, and it's because I follow college football so much. I also do IDPs in there as well, but um, or I am this year. I haven't yet. But um, what what is your, uh, I guess, what's the major difference between just kind of sitting back and watching it this year to what you've been doing this year are you digging into more of the rumors and stuff are you uh looking more forward to some of your georgia players getting drafted what what does it look like for you well so the the draft has always been just sort of a it's really been a college football event for me i mean i've, I've watched it and it's always just sort of a I don't know. It's sort of like a maybe a graduation type event for me, where you know it's it's sort of the culmination of these guys I've been watching for two or three or four years, and now they're going off to do something else, and I'll probably lose track of them because I just don't uh, traditionally, at least the last few years, really haven't paid much attention to the NFL specifically. But uh, I've I've been reading more. Uh, NFL related books and I've definitely been diving in more to uh, like draft guides and, and things like that. I've uh, part of it's driven by uh, CFB winning edge. I mean, you know, I, I try to look and see what other people are doing and see if there are little bits and pieces that I could maybe add to what we offer. And, and one of those 
thoughts has been more written content and and i i do enjoy a couple of uh like draft guides specifically a lot of people are out there doing great work including a lot of independent people but uh some that i've spent more time with this year the the beast uh dane brugler's uh just massive that's always uh, awesome pdf file yeah from from uh the athletic now but he's been doing it a long time and then uh pff their their draft guide is uh is massive as well i think it's like 1300 pages or, or something and they've got a lot of great graphics and it's it's partly good because every once in a while you'll get a little nugget that can be helpful for uh evaluating college football and, and more so like a, a program or a coach like every once in a while they'll mention how uh, you know a particular coach maybe underutilized a player or or a certain situation that arose that could shine a little bit of light on something that maybe i wouldn't have read elsewhere or wouldn't have noticed if i was uh just watching a game or, or reading through box scores and stuff like that so that that's a part of it but also uh i've i've tried to use this time a little bit with, without many other, uh, you know, without sports, without other just uh, things out there to, to grow a little bit as a, as a football watcher, a football thinker. And, and uh, I think that this time is, you know, the lead up to the draft really is a good time to help expand overall football knowledge. And, and I've been diving into those uh, guides and, and, sort of paying closer attention to particular scouting language and things like that. And, and, uh, I don't know, you know, I, I always think there's an opportunity to learn and this year, maybe more, uh, than usual, but, uh, so, you know, there's, there's sort of a wide range of things I'm, I'm looking on still not as deep as I would be if it were specifically a college football, uh, focused event. But I, I, I do think I, uh, have the potential this year to maybe, pay a little closer attention to the NFL than I have yeah. in years past. And who knows, maybe from there it'll, <laughs> maybe from there it'll grow and I'll, I'll get back into it as a, you know, at least a weekly event for me. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, it, it's always fun watching some of these guys go from, uh, especially the smaller school guys go from, uh, you know, the college ranks to the pros and become stars and stuff like that. I mean, uh, you know, just Patrick Mahomes, seeing what he did at Texas Tech, and Texas Tech kind of not being a complete team to uh, going to Kansas City and just becoming even better. It has been just an amazing thing to watch, you know. Uh, Xavier, what are, what are your favorite things about the draft? I know you're probably uh, into it traditionally a little bit more than Nick is. Oh, yeah, I'm knee-deep in the draft right now. Um, I've been doing mock drafts and walking, watching mock drafts since probably February, January, right after the season ended just to get an idea of who's, you know, the guys to look out for. But more so than anything, I love the stories. Um, I love the guys. Um, and we'll get to one of them later. Um, and Antonio uh, Gandhi-Golden uh, out of Liberty that I absolutely have fallen in love with in the pre-draft processes. He, he was unreal at Liberty this year, and I'll get more in depth later about it. But players like him, Jordan Love, even though he hasn't had, you know, the – the season that he wanted to his story about, you know, his father committing suicide and how he's battled back from that and how now it's a dream for him to play in the NFL and things of that nature. Uh, those always drive me. I always like to see if somebody does something like the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and picks a kicker in the second round. It's always fun <laughs> to see, you know, um, will Rodrigo Bacon ship go in the first two days? I doubt it, but if somebody makes the move, 
we'll be seeing the F ratings from all the uh, the big guys like ESPN and PFF. Not. Like I, I like Rodrigo <laughs> Blankenship, right? I think he's going to be a good kicker. But if you take a kicker in the first uh, two days, uh, if you take a kicker b- before round six, uh, yeah. that, that that's grounds for termination as far as I'm concerned for a general manager. So He's right. no Sebastian Janikowski. And, well, I mean, we're not talking first-round kickers, of course. <laughs> so, Zabi, I don't even know. Uh, are you old enough? I'm sure you've heard about it. But are you old enough to remember when the Raiders took Sebastian Janikowski in the first round? I'm not old enough to remember him being drafted. I'm old enough to remember his career, though. So. Right. Well, it was just, I, I think the Raiders, if I'm remembering correctly, Nick, uh, they had four first-round picks that year. And, you know, they had had kicker problems for a decade. And so they just, Janikowski was by far the best kicker available. Like, he's a kicker where if a team takes him in the fourth round, you'd be like, all right, if you don't need anything else, the dude is so good in college. I get it. But uh, he got his nickname the first year was Shankikowski because he shanked so many kicks. So, you know, it's just part of being a Raider at that point in time, I think, more than anything. But, uh, yeah, that was um, that was interesting. And remember that um, the Jacksonville Jaguars selected Brian Anger before the Seahawks took Russell Wilson. So, you know, the, the punter. So, yeah. And thing, <laughs> things like that. And, of course, you know, Brady being pick 199 uh, makes people pay way more attention to those uh, to the back end of the NFL draft. And this year we're going to see fireworks. There's going to be craziness. We're hearing all of this types of um, rumors about now the Dolphins want to move up to three, but it's not for what Tua. It, it's for Andrew Thomas, I would assume, or Tristan Wirfs, one of those two. Mm-hmm. Um which is crazy to me. Uh, I mean, look, I, I like an offensive tackle as much as the next guy, but when you don't have a franchise quarterback and Tua sitting on the board and the doctors say, yeah, you know, he's not at risk anymore for a hip injury than he was before his hip injury. It was a freak thing, and he's good. I just can't imagine that a team's moving up for a tackle over Tua, but it's going to be fun to watch, that's for sure. But uh, let's dive into a little bit more... Um, a little bit more of the college football news. Now, this did, did this JT Daniels stuff, Nick, happen about five minutes after we had finished recording last week? <laughs> uh, I, I feel like it. It was. Uh, I don't know. It's it's it gets lost for me. There are things that happen uh, Friday or Monday or or over the weekend where I I lose time especially now so it, it feels like it happened so long ago but it also feels like it happened just yesterday so uh, <laughs> right now I'm, i don't i don't remember i just know we haven't talked about it yet but uh yeah he, he uh jt daniels a, li- a little bit of a surprise i mean i think uh certainly some people were expecting right after keaton slovis came out and had such a great year and daniels having uh basically played what one half of one game uh before going down with an acl last year there were some people that anticipated this was going to eventually happen but it it also i think caught others by surprise and and maybe myself included because it uh, daniels had been uh you know, discussed is how much he loves USC. Apparently he's got a USC tattoo and, and, uh, you know, there, there was a little bit of surprise cause it seemed like he was leaning toward coming back. And the, the statement that he released, I think Clay Helton 
released one as well that said, you know, hey, he's welcome to come back if you would like. And Daniels apparently is open to to coming back. He just wants to explore all his options. But uh, we've seen some fairly high profile quarterbacks in the transfer portal this year. And, and Daniels is a former five star guy and a guy with a full year of uh, starting experience under his belt as a true freshman, even though he, he wasn't really projected to be the starter this year, he, he probably moves, if not to the top of the list, towards the top of the list as far as uh, maybe most intriguing options available uh, for transfer this year. And, and you know, if he's able to be immediately eligible in, in 2020, it could have a, a big impact for, you know, for a team or, or for college football as a whole. Uh Xavier, I mean, have you thought about fits for JT Daniels? Because like Nick just mentioned, all the stuff that I heard was he loves USC. He kind of wants to stay there, but he's got to think of his long-term future, you know, Mm -hmm. beyond college football. Of course, you're a five-star recruit. You know, people assume you're going to one day play in the NFL or get drafted or, you know, at least make a run at it. So you got to get some experience first. Have you thought about fits or um, were you just kind of shocked when you heard this news? I really felt like he may have made this move due to the fact that spring practice got canceled. Um, I really felt like he needed a spring, a good spring and a good fall to possibly take the job back. And possibly with, you know, spring practice being canceled and the whole coronavirus thing happening, you know, he felt like his opportunity to to get his job back was at jeopardy, especially with the, the idea that we may just be like starting the college football season you know, in September and not giving the kids really a lot of time to get ready, that doesn't really bode well from a guy coming off of an injury and trying to get his job back. So um, as far as fits are concerned, I've watched, I've seen a lot of videos. Everybody thinks he's going to be a good fit there. The funniest one to me was obviously Tennessee, uh, who, <laughs> <laughs> who 247 Sports came out with, you know, him going to Tennessee. Everybody thinks that he might, you know, there's everybody thinks that he's going to be a possibly good fit at their school. Let's put it that way. I don't think that there's necessarily a great fit for him, okay. but at the same time, I don't think that he, I think that anywhere he's going to go, he has to be able to get the job right away. This is a kid that could very well fall into the mold of a, of a former five-star that transfers one school, doesn't want a job, transfers to another school and has to continue to keep transferring for him to finally find a job, uh, find a job, Tate Martell, if this doesn't all go mm-hmm. right for him. Uh, so it was a weird move, but I understand it with the current climate. Yeah, I mean, it made sense. Uh, I think Keaton Slovis uh, proved himself to be very worthy of keeping that starting job at USC last year. And like you said, with limited ramp-up time, uh, I, I think it makes sense. I think that because he loves USC so much that we can kind of we can rule out anyone else in the Pac-12, right? Because he doesn't want to go to a rival school because he loves USC. So I think I think Tennessee would be a nice fit. You know, it's yeah. across the country. Uh, <laughs> they're not going to they're not going to bump heads unless it's in a bowl game. So uh, I, you know, but also a good fit is kind of funny uh, consider uh, any team that doesn't have a, a for sure starting quarterback would invite a five-star recruit into their ranks, right Nick? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and it's interesting. I mean, it, it's if he were to end up in the SEC or, or somewhere in the East Coast, it'd sort of be like a reverse Jacob Eason, where he was a five-star guy, got hurt, lost his job, couldn't get it back, uh, transferred closer to home. For JT Daniels, it, it could be the opposite. But I, I would be skeptical or, or I, I would... 
I would be hesitant to say that if he loves USC so much, that would maybe limit him from going to uh, another Pac-12 school because a, a couple of the teams that sort of jumped to mind first, one, Washington State, I mean, he could go there and, and uh, compete for a job right away, probably be the favorite, even though there's probably going to be three guys uh, in the mix there, uh, you know, to, to jump in and, and throw for a ton of yards. And, and uh, Nick Rolovich hasn't necessarily developed a lot of NFL quarterbacks just yet but uh you know cole mcdonald sort of was basically in obscurity and and rolovich put him in as the uh starting quarterback a couple of years ago and now he might get drafted he at least left school early for the for the nfl draft so uh that that is an intriguing thing that just sort of popped in my head purely speculatively uh i've heard oregon state uh, you know, that, that makes a certain amount of sense. They're replacing Jake Luton at quarterback. Not 100% sure if Tristan Jevy is the guy there. Uh, you know, I, I'm not sure that uh, the hire of Carl Durrell at, at Colorado is the most, you know, gives you gets you most excited if you're JT Daniels, but there's certainly an opportunity to go in and, and play early um, and, you know, basically would step in and, and be the offense because they're, pretty much starting over from uh, the quarterback position and, and are one of the, uh, you know, from a pure talent, raw talent standpoint, one of the uh, weakest rosters in, in the Pac-12. So uh, it certainly would be a challenge, but it'd be an opportunity to, to go in and play a lot and uh, sort of maybe be the centerpiece of an offense that uh, a new coaching staff could build around. I And, well, and I, I agree with you, Nick. I mean, I think that um, – Look, he's got to do whatever's best for his career, right? So if uh, Washington State offers him and he wants to go up there, uh, I think that's a great, great idea for him. Uh, you know, let's see him throw the ball as much as he possibly can and get him in front of some NFL scouts. I just think, you know, personally, if I was at Texas and someone took my starting job and then Oklahoma offered me, I'd be like, Mm, no, thank you. You know, <laughs> I just I couldn't do it. You know, it, it just would be against everything in my blood. But um, you know, money talks, and if you're right. gonna, if you're gonna, decision, right, right. I mean, number one, you know, wherever you're gonna get your school paid for, go there. And uh, n- number two, you know, it, it's uh, if you're putting eyes on you staying in the Pac-12. Uh, by going to Washington State, you know, if it's Washington State or you know Tennessee, I think I'm probably going to look better going to Washington State, uh, especially playing against some Pac-12 defenses as well. So I think I would probably do that. You're absolutely right, uh, Xavier. A- any thoughts on him wanting to stay in the Pac-12 potentially? Well, actually, Scott Wolf, um, who is uh, on Twitter, said that he's hearing that Washington is actually one of Daniel's top choices um, at the moment. Mm. Yeah. So this was and this was tweeted on April 19th. So only a couple of days ago. Um, And he's he's an L.A. Daily News contributor. He's been covering USC for about 20 years now. Um, So it's possible that he could be staying in the Pac-12. Uh, other teams that come to mind off of the top of my head, obviously, are Michigan. They could always use a quarterback, uh, oh. you know, and there's somebody who's dabbled in the transfer portal before. Um, but if I was JT Daniels, I would stay as far as way as possible from Michigan because mm-hmm. it didn't work out for Shea. And the way that John Harbaugh coaches, I don't think it's going to work out for him either. Um, but, hey, it, it does seem like 
he's keeping all of his options open and that he doesn't have any real loyalty to USC at this current moment because um, he hasn't spurned any opportunity to stay in the Pac-12. Well, I tell you what, if he goes to Washington and doesn't play well, they may have burned their uh, transfer bridge, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if I would want I would want to go there if I was transferring after uh, Jacob Eason went there and did not look good. That could be just Jacob Eason, though. So I'm well. I'm more than willing to say that. I can't <laughs> believe yeah. some people have him going in the first round of this draft. I mean, I know you guys are Georgia fans and he's a five star recruit and in, in, in all that stuff. <laughs> but uh I just watching him get usurped by Jake Fromm and then, um, you know, not be able to come back and then go to Washington and not play that well either was just a little bit astounding to me. So uh, I think it's more Jacob Eason than anything, but, mm-hmm. you know, who knows? <laughs> um, but we add other transfers as well. Uh, Purdue added a pair of transfers, UConn defensive back Tyler Coy, uh, who should start for the Boilermakers immediately. And UCLA quarterback uh, Aston Burton will graduate this summer, and he's going to compete with Jack Plummer. I mean, those are some pretty damn good uh, transfers for the Boilermakers, right, Nick? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure how many of our listeners know much about Tyler Coy, but he, he has been highly, highly productive at UConn the last few years, and, and he's started 31 games there, uh, put up, you know, ton of tackles, other other uh, counting stats as well. But uh, according to our numbers, he's, he's uh, a player that's ranked or uh, rated a, a 92. Uh, so he immediately becomes uh, not only the highest rated uh, player in the, in the backfield, you know, the, the secondary for Purdue, but he's the second highest uh, defensive player on their roster behind George Karloftis. So uh, he's, he's going to be an impact player and, and help solidify, you know, a unit that could use some help because as we talked about in our, you know, Purdue look ahead several weeks ago, uh, just from a, a pure, you know, talent standpoint, there, there certainly some uh, catching up to do if, if Purdue's going to get back to a bowl game. And, and uh, as far as Austin Burton, that, that one was intriguing to me because I, I was starting to talk myself into Jack Plummer, I think. Uh, I know he, he didn't necessarily look spectacular last year. And, of course, he, he did uh, suffer a season-ending injury after, I believe it was six starts. So, you know, it, it's not necessarily like he was going to be uh, a superstar, but you know Burton, I think has an opportunity to come in, challenge for playing time. They also have uh, a, a really highly rated true freshman coming in, Michael. Uh, probably going to mispronounce it, uh, Alemo maybe, uh, who is the the highest rated quarterback on the roster uh, as far as you know his two four seven sports rating coming out of high school and, and one of the higher rated quarterbacks they've had there in a while. So it'll be an interesting competition there and and you know the more people that are in there competing for a job uh the better chance i think that that somebody's you know going to be able to step in and and take it over um burton only you know made one start played in six games at, at ucla but he's a junior has two years and one of the interesting things i think with all the you know sort of shut down pause of of college football here in the spring and, and leading into the summer is I think players are going to be on a little bit more even playing field when it comes to true freshmen, when it comes to incoming transfers, 
than we would normally see in, in other years. So I think that's a, a quarterback job at this point that's probably pretty, pretty wide open, even though I, I was starting to think like, okay, maybe this Jake Plummer guy is going to be, you know, going to going to be the guy, going to be able to go up Jack and, and put up. Jack Plummer. <laughs> He's uh, Jake the Snake. I do it all right, the time uh, because uh, Jake Plummer played here. So, oh, know. yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, it, it, I, have started to come around. He had a couple of good games, uh, last year, but I don't know. It's intriguing. It'll be, it'll be fun to watch it play out in the fall because if Purdue can find a quarterback, they have an opportunity to, to do some really good things because, you know, any team with Rondell Moore and David Bell and the receiving core, and they've got some interesting tight ends as well that are, uh, looking to replace Bryson Hopkins. So they're, going to be a lot of fun to watch on offense if they can get the quarterback position ironed out. I mean, great moves for uh, Purdue, right? Right, Xavier? And if you're a uh, guy that is producing at UConn, you transfer, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's crazy. I I just looked it up as we were talking. Um, They've had 26 guys enter the transfer portal and leave uh, since they announced that they were leaving the FBS. Um, So there's a mass exodus going on at UConn. I mean, rightfully so. You would think that these guys are playing for their futures, um, you know, NFL or otherwise. And so playing in an FBS program is probably the best thing for them to do. So obviously transferring is something that they, that is necessary. Um, but yeah, Purdue got two really two good players. And then on top of that with Burton, I really like the competition that's going to be available for them. And if I was a quarterback, I would love throwing to Rondell Moore too. So I completely understand the transfer by Burton. Um, he's a guy who didn't get a lot of reps at UCLA and didn't look like he was going to get any more uh, going into this year. Um, and just giving himself an opportunity to play. And I can't knock that at all. So there's a couple other moves I'm going to burn through, and then we can uh, talk about them. Defensive end William Bradley King announced his transfer from Arkansas to Baylor. He's a former all-sunbelt player who should uh, provide immediate help to the Baylor defensive line. Former Rutgers starting center uh, Michael Mayotte transferred to Missouri. Mayotte is likely to replace uh, Tristan Colon-Castillo, who entered the NFL draft. Uh, A couple quarterbacks entered the portal as well. Well, Western Kentucky, Stephen Duncan, and Mississippi State's Keaton Thompson. Pretty interesting names there. Um, Ohio State wide receiver uh, Jalen Gill informed coaches he would enter the transfer portal. He had been penciled in uh, starting in the starting lineup on the early depth charts. Uh, Indiana tight end Peyton Hendershot, who had been suspended in February following an arrest, is back with the team in a modified way, according to Coach Tom Allen. I don't know what that means, but he's currently <laughs> not on the depth chart. Um, all Boise State sports furloughed coaching staffs 10 days this year. We've seen some coaches take a pay cut, but this seems to be the first mandated furlough at the FBS level. And then there were some uh, rules uh, changes as well, but we'll get to those in a second. So uh, the the moves with the players and then the the weird coaching furlough, uh, Nick, what do you think of these moves? Well, William Bradley King is somebody that, you know, similar to Coyle, is highly productive at a lower uh, conference level. Uh, he was an all-sun belt player at Arkansas State, put up some some really solid uh, seasons has been injured a little bit. They, uh, the Red Wolves were, were hit really hard on the defensive side of the ball with injuries last year. And, and he spent a fair amount of time on the sidelines, but, 
Uh, Baylor's basically rebuilding on the defensive line, really on defense as a whole. So if you can get a player that's uh, been highly productive at the FBS level and, uh, you know, potentially pencil him into your, uh, you know, the top of your depth chart, that that's going to be a net positive, I'd, I'd say for sure. Uh, Missouri, you know, if you can, uh, similarly, if you can pluck a, a veteran uh, starter at a position of need, uh, that's that's only going to be a positive. You know, we, we have seen Rutgers transfers uh, perform well at, at other positions. Jonah Jackson, offensive lineman, went to Ohio State, and then last I saw was getting a little buzz uh, in in the draft talk this week as well. So, uh, you know, those, those are shoring up some positions of need, or at least providing you know, depth or, or potentially some uh, starting options. So I think they're definitely a good thing. I was a little surprised at Western Kentucky that, uh, you know, Duncan was the starter in in 2018, I believe. And then he was, uh, he'd actually beat Ty Story out uh, in the fall to start for the Hilltoppers, but was injured and then Story played so well, he, he was able to hold on to that job and lead them to a, a really nice season. So you expected Duncan to get that job back and, and you know, be the guy in 2020 now that Story is, uh, you know, out of eligibility. So a bit of a surprise. You wonder if maybe there's a grad transfer situation lined up. Who knows? Maybe it could be Keaton Thompson. I mean, he started a bowl game for Mississippi State a couple of years ago, played some wide receiver at, at Mississippi State, or there there uh, had been some talk about that. He had been in the transfer portal earlier in the 2019 season. So uh, obviously just, you know, a situation where he's looking for an opportunity to play and, and you know, Western Kentucky could be a fit. Uh, he did start a, a bowl game for Mississippi State a couple of years ago, so he's shown uh, that he can play the position. And, and you know, if, if not there, maybe an FCS opportunity or, or something like that. But uh, interesting moving parts at, at the quarterback position. And then at Ohio State, Gill, yeah, he, he, we penciled him into our uh, early depth charts as the third receiver there for Ohio State. They uh, have to replace a lot of production, all three starters at the receiver position. So uh, he was somebody that probably – you know, was in line to play. So it's kind of interesting to see him decide uh, that he would be better served moving elsewhere. So that that's one to watch because I know some people were excited about the athleticism that he brought uh, as a receiver, but also as an all-purpose player. Uh, the Hendershot situation is, is kind of a weird one because he had a, a pretty uh, ugly sounding incident that, that led to an arrest in February. And uh, I did not expect that he would be back, but you know, maybe maybe uh, things have evolved in, in whatever way. I'm not ready to put him back in our depth charts or our CFF rankings or uh, our returning production numbers. So if we ever talk about Indiana, at least at this point, Hendershot, Hendershot is not part of those numbers. But uh, if Tom Allen, you know, welcomes him back and, and it looks like he's going to play this fall, then we'll, of course, make those updates. But not not sure quite what to think of that one yet. And uh, finally, the yeah, the Boise State uh, furloughs are, are, you know, that that's not necessarily uh, what you want to hear as a football fan, as a, as a college football fan. If you're looking forward to the season, if you're hoping things are going to start on time, when you see FBS programs uh, make decisions like this, uh, and of course, it's more than just the coaches. It's it's 
you know, all, all sorts of people who are working at the university. It's it's a, a difficult situation for a lot of people. Uh, but college football specifically, uh, it's it's not a great sign. If you're holding out hope, we have seen some good signs. Uh, or at least some reasons for optimism. Missouri specifically today said, you know, released a statement that they were uh, expecting to have on-campus classes this fall. That's a good sign. Following uh, a bad sign with Boise State, things change on a day-to-day basis. It's hard to know exactly how it's going to shake out, but uh, this was, you know, if you're trying to read the tea leaves, this isn't necessarily what you wanted to see. Yeah, it's uh, it's a weird situation for sure. Xavier, what do you think about those... uh transfers and then the coaching move I, I love the Baylor move uh Bradley King going to Baylor we talked about so much uh, talent that they lost on the defense that really was the, the the part of the team that really carried them for parts of the season you know we talked about an explosive offense but that defensive front was easily one of the best if not the best defensive front in the Big 12 last year and so them getting uh, a talented guy out of you know the Sun Belt you know who's going to be producing for them next year, and who has the who has the uh, production is going to be awesome for them. Um, as far as Keaton Thompson, this is uh, one of the moves that just makes sense to me. You know, KJ Costello comes in, makes the quarterback room even more saturated. You know, he lost his job to Tommy Stevens last year, early on in the year. I just think that it's the best move for him to make in the best possible situation for him. Um, it just it looks a little weird and it doesn't look great that it's the second time that he's entering the portal. Um, it looks like it makes him look a little wishy-washy for some schools, but it's just a kid trying to get into a better situation, in my opinion. Um, so, you know, and then with Jalen Gill, once again, ridiculously athletic kids are coming into his freshman class. Um, I was reading up on an article from 247 Sports and they said the freshman class may push him out of a job in, in the first place. Um, so just a kid trying to go out and find an opportunity to make some talent. Um, he had an amazing catch early on last year. I can't remember exactly who it was against, uh, but he's a very, very talented kid. And I think that he's going to have an opportunity wherever he decides to go. You know, if you want to come to Georgia, please, we could use more receivers. I will absolutely <laughs> take you down there. Um, uh, Peyton Hendershot, it's a weird situation. Um, anytime I see he's back with the team after having, uh, uh the battery charges in a modified way. I don't know if that means he's a, a, a grad coach or a, something of that situation or anything like that, um, or just a guy in the locker room that's just around. I hate uh, that it's vagueness. It's a weird situation. I really mm-hmm. do. Yeah. I, I hate it. Like, just just say mean what you say and say what you mean and tell us what, what, is, he, what is he doing. Is he yeah. uh, on the staff hoping to, you know, get back as a student or something? Like, what what's the plan? I hate the... He's back in a different way. Okay, well, tell it. What's the way? I mean, don't be so vague. It just doesn't make any damn sense to me. Right. And then to kind of wrap it up, Boise State furloughing off their, their coaching staff. It kind of just hits on the head of what we talked about was some of these mid-major programs. I didn't think it would be Boise State, but some of these mid-major programs are going to struggle because um, they do make money during the spring. Uh, without these schools not being in, in, in session, it's going to really hurt. Uh, a lot of these mid-major programs. Um, Georgia State was one of the schools that, luckily for them, they got funding from the uh, from the government, enough funding to be able to continue to pay their coaches, or they were a team that was possibly on the on their way to furloughing as well. So it's definitely uh, something that we have to continue to look at um, ongoing throughout the rest of this situation, um, as more schools towards the bottom are definitely going to be looking for options to save money. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the Keaton Thompson one is, uh, I... I you know, I did hear you, Xavier, when you said uh, teams may think he's wishy-washy. I always, uh, I know that that's the case, 
but that's eye rolling, you know, like the kids yeah, are absolutely. trying to do what's best for him, you know, so which is what coaches do every single year, mm-hmm. you know, coaches move schools all the time. We don't give them crap. I would give the kids crap. So it doesn't make any sense to me, but I wanted to save this for last because um, the NCAA uh, changing some rules. I know a lot of people aren't big on rule changes, but I like this one that they did. They said that players getting ejected for targeting no longer have to lead the sideline, which is the way it should be all the time. I thought the, you know, I think it was Herbie, I think Kirk Herbstreit, who was talking about, uh, let can we get rid of the perp walk of having a security guard walk the kid all the way back to the locker room? Like, that's just ridiculous. He doesn't need to be going to the locker room anyway. He didn't do it. He's not, he shouldn't be kicked out of the game for making a mistake. If he's booted from playing, okay, take his helmet. You know, uh, guys, guys aren't going to go out with uh, without a helmet, and it's tough to find another one to fit. So, um, <laughs> you know, and you could also lay down some serious, uh, you know, sanctions if a uh, kid should go back out there after he's been ejected. You know, uh, they forfeit the game, um, you know, whatever it is, uh, d- do something major so that the coaches will make sure that that crap doesn't happen. So uh, I-, I think that's fine. But the second one, it's just non-enforceable. It's the... Instant replay reviews must conclude within two minutes, and they're going to tweak uh, the game clock expiring at the end of the half, and uh, now players can wear number zero, which get ready to see a bunch of kickers wear the number zero now. But um, I don't know. the. There's no way they're going to do this instant replay one, Nick. It's just it's impossible to enforce. It's never going to happen. But I do <laughs> like that the kids getting ejected can stay on the sideline. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think that, you know, it, it's not hurting anybody to, to have a player that's been ejected for targeting stay on the sideline. And, and it doesn't really make sense to make them watch the rest of the game from the locker room. You know, somebody uh, on the staff walk them out of the, the uh, stadium. And we've seen, uh, you know, I mean, it's yeah, I, I, I think that a lot of people have, have uh, I agree with a lot of the sentiment out there that this is a, a change for the good. Uh, the the replay, I mean, it, it certainly uh, would be nice to speed things up and, and hopefully uh, even if they can't completely, you know, enforce it, at least there will be, uh, what do they say, an area of emphasis or, or something like that. They'll, right. they'll do their best to, to sort of stick to this, emphasize this anytime there's a replay review because, I mean, I've, I've been watching a lot of uh, YouTube replays recently and, and I it shocks me almost how uh, long some of these replays are. And, and I just, uh, you know, I, I of course see it in, Longer in than live action. Longer than Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, and I see it on Saturdays live, but I, I'm usually watching three or four different games and, and flipping around and I can, you know, change the channel and, and see something else and come back when I think the replay's done. But as I'm just watching one at a time, these these replays, uh, I can't believe how long they're, they're going on sometimes. So, yeah, I, I certainly understand the, the desire to speed things up. The, the clock rule seems weird <laughs> because they said uh, something to the effect of if the officials say on the field, okay, the half is over, like a, a guy steps out of bounds, there might be one second left on the clock. But if the officials say, oh, no, half's over, they're not going to review that at all unless there's 
three seconds or, or they're not going to uh, get everybody back on the field unless there's actually three seconds left on the clock, which seems like it's, it's never, ever going to happen. Three seconds is, it's an eternity in those situations. An official could, could not make a mistake where he thinks that uh, the clock is run out if there's actually three seconds. So that one's kind of weird. It, it certainly has had a, an impact on a, a few games in recent memory. Last year's Iron Bowl, uh, Auburn was able to uh, kick a long field goal right before the half by getting an extra uh, second on the clock. And then I'm guessing, I, I believe the kick six was a similar situation, but reversed where uh, Alabama wanted an extra second to try a long field goal. And of course we know how that worked out. So it's a weird, it's a weird rule. And, and I understand replay and wanting to get it right so this seems like you're almost moving in the opposite direction, or it seems like maybe it's too harsh because that that's a situation I think that merits a little more scrutiny. So I, I don't know that that one seems weird to me. The number zero. Uh, anybody who's gone in our FBS team profiles will know that I always assign true freshmen who don't have uh, Jersey numbers, number zero yet. So I'm going to have to go oh, in no. and, and f- uh, figure something else out. Put a double zero, something. double zero. They, no, it, it corrects to zero. Oh, it doesn't no, really. Can't do double zero. Yeah. But Xavier, I'm curious. So you, you of course have played more recently than, than we have. Are, are guys going to want number zero? Oh, absolutely. It is one of those numbers that if you can get your hands on it, you're not going to give it up. It's weird. It's a weird infatuation with the number zero because you want to make zero to hero an actual thing. Now, is this going to be a skill position thing or, is it, or are we going to see 350-pound defensive tackles? Wearing no Probably. way. God. That would be <laughs> Eric so Brown weird. would have worn zero. I mean, look, it's a way to stand out, right? So uh, I just want to see the first quarterback to do it. Oh, oh I didn't think about quarterbacks. Uh, it, it better be. <laughs> I don't know why. I just didn't even. <laughs> his last name better be Picks. You know, <laughs> that, that's all I'm saying. Zero picks. Like that. That's the only way. So um, I don't know. The, I I love this uh, mainly because uh, my buddy, the Welsh over at In This League, hates, hates the fact that uh, some out of position guys will wear weird numbers he doesn't like the single digits on the offensive players which has been done for a while like he's gotten over that but like a kicker wearing 99 he despises you know uh <laughs> anytime a uh linebacker just wears number four he doesn't like that so uh, i'm gonna love this so i can just take pictures of all the zeros and send them to him <laughs> on twitter like that's gonna be a lot of fun to me so that's my enjoyment of it but uh I don't know. Are they going to be able to do this instant replay rule? I mean, within two minutes, Xavier. I mean, come on. They're not going to be able to do it, right? Yeah, yeah. Nobody's going to call off a national championship game because they couldn't get the instant replay done in two minutes. Right. It's a nice idea. I, w- I, w- I would like to see it implement, uh, implement more, uh, maybe with smaller plays, which, I mean, everybody's like, every play in football is big, but come on. Like, we we can we can figure this out to where we're not taking ten minute long instant replays when we watch the same replay at home like fifteen times we know what it is but yet the guy who's looking at it you know in Auburn can't figure out if it's a catch or not but everybody at home is like it's a catch um they've got to be able to figure out a way because it makes football games way way too long um as far as the tweaking to the game clock expiring at the end of half uh, AKA the Nick Saban rule 
Um, this reminds me a lot of the NBA's rule, which is if the clock is under like 0.3, then they won't play it. it, it it's impossible for a shot or a tip in them be made under 0.3 seconds in the NBA. So they'll just rule out the uh, rule it out and in the game or in the half. So it reminds me a lot of that rule where now if the ref decides it's off, it's off. Um, so I, I do like that because I was at that Iron Bowl game and it was really weird to be sitting there uh, as a media member, not knowing if we had to go back out or not to go get the field goal kick or if it was going to be anything at all. Uh, so absolutely. And then the players being ejected. Yeah, that just makes 100 percent sense. Let them sit there with their friends or the red shirt kids on the sideline, take their pads even so that they can't, you know, make a tackle on the sideline, you know, illegally or something like that. So, you know, do something like that, but don't kick them out of the game. There's really no reason to do that. They've already been ejected. Uh, so, you know, just add insult to injury. Yeah, I always thought that was weird. And the perp walk, like the uh, mm-hmm. these guys aren't criminals. You know, they made a mistake. Good Lord. Especially on the road. It was really, yeah. it, it got that real weird vibe that the rest of the crowd was like, look at this one guy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> look at this criminal. That's what it looked like. Right. And it's like, they hit the guy the wrong way. It was instant. He tried to kill him. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like he was out there with a knife or anything, for God's sake. You know, uh, it was a mistake. It was a mistake. So. Uh, I'm I'm glad they changed that rule. That was something that absolutely needed to be changed uh, just on optics alone. So it, it's a good thing that they did it. But uh, today we are going to be going over G5 um, returning production on offense. Right, Nick? Uh, well, I figured we could we could uh, just sort of go through offense and defense quickly. I wasn't going to go as in depth, a lot of the things the last two weeks, if you listen to it, if you haven't, go back and, and uh, catch some of those explanations. But uh, figured I'd done a lot of the explaining and what some of the you know most important numbers were. So I kind of just wanted to focus on uh, who are going to be at the at the far ends, at the extreme ends of welcoming back the most returning production and the least returning production at the G five level and and. Basically, uh, part of the reason for doing that, as I was running the numbers, and, and you know, last last couple of weeks we looked at uh, the playoff teams, and we looked at uh, division winners at, at the Power Five level, and sort of what were some categories that jumped out, maybe as potentially giving a team, uh, you know, reason to be overly or, or more optimistic heading into a season. At, at the G five level, it really doesn't. Nothing really jumps out. I did the same with uh, division winners, and and basically everybody is right in line with the G5 average as far as uh, coming into 2019. So, uh, you know, pass breakups, passes defensed still are are, uh, theoretically the the most important thing from a defensive standpoint. Receiving yardage is probably the most important thing uh, from an offensive standpoint, but there's, there's no major... You know, uh, there's nothing jumping out to say like, oh yes, at the G5 level, this is something that that we need to pay the most attention to. So, uh, just looking at at you know who's welcoming back the most, who's improving the most on uh, our roster strength metric uh, this year. There, there's really no one at the at the extreme end at the at the G5 level. I think there were five uh, Power Five teams that 
increased their roster strength by a full point or more last year. There are none at, at the G5 level. But teams that are, are moving in the right direction have a positive uh, roster strength coming into this year are uh, San Jose State, Memphis, Houston, Fresno State, Toledo, and Nevada. Uh, the San Jose State one was interesting to me because Nick Starkle is, is transferred there, uh, probably going to be the starter, and, and they're going to throw the football a lot. And, and he things obviously didn't work well for him at Arkansas last year, but uh, they have a chance – uh, potentially to, to uh, you know, give him a, a second chance, really a third chance, I guess, since he was at Texas A&M before that. But um, I, I like that move, and, and I think it, it's going to help their uh, help their team, help their roster. The other teams probably aren't, you know, much of a surprise. I mean, Houston. I, I'm I'm a little surprised about Houston because of uh, kind of the controversialness of what was going on there last season, you know, with sure. the, the uh, guys, um, you know, taking red shirts because they knew the team wasn't going to win. Uh, obviously, Derek King left, but it uh, seems like the rest of them are sticking around, huh? Well, so it, it's uh, it's partly because the way we measured this and then the change in roster strength from one year to the next is I, I take it at the end of the 2019 season. So Derek King wasn't playing he he had redshirted he was removed from our roster he was still on their official roster but uh we had taken him out so he, he's a highly rated player but his his rating in particular wasn't wasn't there for for their end of season roster strength number if that makes sense gotcha. and so when we're rolling it over to, to 2020 when clayton toon who was the starter after king uh left and, and then a couple of guys did uh come back Bulbacar, the uh running back and and uh they had a receiver as well uh both of those guys are are uh, expected to return to houston this year and then just overall they they had a a decent amount of returning production across the board. So uh, that's that's partly why it is, because it, it, if it were comparing uh, their roster strength maybe at the beginning of 2019 when King would have been in there and he was a 100-rated player and, and still is, uh, they might you know see a, a different number. They might be uh, in the negatives. But because he wasn't a, a part of it, uh, that's why they're on the list. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, that makes sense. That makes uh, mm-hmm. a little bit more sense. So on the other end of things, and in previous weeks we talked about that we, we've changed uh, how roster strength is calculated a little bit to try to uh, make it so experience isn't as big a factor. I, we were overweighting it, I think, the last couple of years. Uh, but G5 teams have uh, have there are quite a few of them at the, at the extreme end in the negatives as far as losing a lot of. Uh, their overall roster strength. And, and a lot of this can be done, you know, uh, really productive quarterbacks and running backs are, are going to hurt. And then, of course, you know, if you've got a, a very productive defensive player as well, but quarterbacks matter most in our in our uh, projections, just like they should pretty much with, with anything. But uh, Western Michigan is there. They lost Levante Bellamy, the running back, who's a 100-rated player, so that, that's a big part of it. And then also uh, their starting quarterback, uh, Utah State, Jordan Love, I mean, potential first-round guy, and, and that's going to be a, a big hit to a team like that that doesn't recruit at a high level. Uh, other other people on this list probably make a certain amount of sense. Eastern Michigan, Central Michigan, Louisiana Tech, North Texas, 
uh, with Mason Fine. Liberty, as, as we'll talk about here in a little bit, had some really good players that, that are uh, not going to be back in 2020. New Mexico State is, uh, has an opportunity uh, to, to challenge rival UTEP to be the worst team in college football next year because they bring back almost nothing from uh, what was already not a, not a great team. Uh, Navy has a lot of turnover year to year. Uh, they're going to have more this year with Malcolm Perry gone. FIU is is one of the big uh, changeovers this year. They lose a potential NFL quarterback and then uh, UTEP as well. So uh, if you're looking for, you know, what are, what are some teams that are going to be uh, maybe hurting, especially early in the year, uh, take a look at, at some of those because they've got a lot of holes to fill. Um, I, last week or, or the last couple of weeks, we looked at certain benchmark numbers that maybe might lead us to, uh, see, you know, is this a, a team that has a chance to really jump up and overachieve or, or exceed expectations? Or on the flip side, is this a team that we should look a little harder at and, and think, okay, maybe they're going to take a step back. And, and one of those, uh, things that we did was, Teams that return 90% of their passing production, so their total passing yardage, and then 75% of their receiving production. If, if we put those two together, that gave us a pretty good idea at the Power 5 level for some teams that would take a big step forward, especially offensively. This year, they're at the G5 level, there's actually quite a, a few. I mean, there are 12 teams that return 90% of their passing yardage and 75% of their receiving yardage. And those teams are East Carolina, Charlotte, Middle Tennessee, Old Dominion. UAB is very close. We could round up their receiving to 75%. UTSA, Akron, Buffalo, Miami of Ohio, UNLV, Appalachian State, and Coastal Carolina. So that, you know, if you're looking at maybe a a sleeper team, a team that could challenge for bowl eligibility that was, you know, sort of uh, low on the low end, Last year, maybe a Coastal Carolina, maybe a UNLV, that might be a, a group of teams to consider. Taking it one step far, uh, further and including 80% of the rushing uh, production, the list is still pretty long for, for what we saw. It is uh, long. Yeah, we only had a couple of teams at the, at the Power 5 level, but uh, East Carolina, Middle Tennessee, UAB, UTSA, Buffalo, Miami, UNLV and Coastal Carolina all hit those three benchmarks, which uh, on the one hand, you think, okay, that's, that's, you know, that's really, that's really something. But then on the other hand, you think, well, if there are so many of them, then maybe the actual impact is going to be a little bit less, if that makes sense. Yeah, that, that, that's a good point. I'm like, it's funny because looking at the returning uh, passing yards and receiving yards, I was like, Buffalo. All right, but most of their offense is Patterson, <laughs> but then, you know, 80% of the rushing yards, so almost the entire offense is coming back for Buffalo. Right. That, that should make them uh, pretty scary. Well, and, and Buffalo is, is particularly interesting to me because Buffalo actually was, uh, from, going to, to, from 2018 to 2019, saw the biggest drop-off in roster strength of any FBS team. They lost almost six and a half points. And that was because Tyree Jackson left early for the NFL draft. They lost their top two really good receivers. Yeah, KJ Osborne uh, transferred, and uh, Anthony Johnson went in the draft. So Absolutely. And, and you know, Jarrett Patterson had, had done some good things. Kevin Marks had done some good things. But they we didn't expect them to both be 1,000-yard rushers and Jarrett Patterson to potentially be one of the best G5 running backs in the country. So uh, 
it, it was interesting to me that Buffalo actually really had a, a good season despite being on the wrong end on a lot of the, the returning production numbers. And as I dug a little bit more, I mean, some of the teams that were in a similar situation, UAB won its division in Conference USA. Boise State won the Mountain West. Arkansas State was very competitive, very fun to watch, at least on offense. FAU uh, was one of the top five as far as seeing their roster strength uh, go down, and, and they won Conference USA, won 10 games. Uh, so it, it seems that this isn't maybe as important at the G5 level. And, and this is only looking at one year's worth of data, so it's a very, very small sample. And we talked about that in the last couple of weeks that don't overemphasize these things. But, you know, maybe there are some clues. And one of the clues that I, I felt like I was picking up a little bit is that these numbers matter more for P5 teams than they do G5 teams. But... Mm. Sort of on the on the flip, you know, the the flip side. Who's who's in a bad situation? Maybe these matter more because these these are sort of a, a smaller number of teams. But which G five teams return under ten percent of their passing yards and under fifty percent of their receiving yards? Last year, the group included UConn, Fresno State, Bowling Green, Buffalo, as we discussed, and South Alabama. Well, Buffalo certainly was an exception, but I think we would all agree that four out of those five were, you know, teams that that really disappointed. I mean, Fresno State, we certainly didn't see them uh, going four and eight. We expected they were uh, going to compete for the Mountain West Championship again. But perhaps if we had realized like, oh, well, you know, the passing production and the receiving production being so low, maybe that's a team that we shouldn't be so high on. This year, the, the teams that meet those benchmarks are Tulane, FIU and New Mexico State. Tulane could be in an interesting situation because it seems like they're in the grad transfer market for a quarterback. That always throws another you know, variable in there to, to pay attention to. But FIU, uh, they might not. You know, and, and New Mexico State, uh, they're basically starting over at the quarterback position. So I, I think that we could see a significant drop in, in those two teams. FIU and New Mexico State specifically also return less than 40% of their rushing production, which last year, the two teams that came close uh, to, to being fewer than 10, 40, and 50 in passing, rushing, and receiving, uh, respectively, uh, UMass returned 42% of its receiving, but everything else met, and UConn had 49% of its rushing, but everything else met. Those were two of the worst teams in college football. So uh, that that's a number I'm going to pay attention to. FIU, we might see a big drop. New Mexico State has a chance to, to really be bad, potentially. It's funny to think about how um, early in the year I was really into watching UMass, uh, <laughs> but, you know, because you want to make fun of it because they were one of the worst teams, but, I mean, come on, it's almost like the what would you do for a Klondike bar? What would you do for a UMass <laughs> game right now, guys? I mean, I would, I would do a lot just to get some uh, some sports on television, so... Uh, yeah, these teams, I mean, FIU specifically, after having such a big year and beating Miami and, and stuff like that, I don't think that the expectations should be very high with a lot of those teams, a lot of those guys leaving. Um, right. So that that makes the most sense to me. Uh, but I don't think, regardless of if New Mexico State was returning a bunch or not, uh, that I would be um, surprised by them not having a bad year either way. So. 
but the FIU one is something that we do have to remember for sure. As as far as I'm like, you know, uh, finding practicality and looking uh, at, at these numbers. So, um, <laughs> but and it might, you know, to to anybody that's <laughs> maybe still listening, they they uh, <laughs> probably on, probably get it. A little bit, but but uh, you know, some people might might think, you know, why are you talking about New Mexico State? Why are you talking about these G five teams? What does it matter? Well, well, one, I'm I'm interested because one of the weaknesses with our model the first couple of years were teams on that extreme end of of being bad, and it, it's difficult to project how bad UMass was going to be last year we actually we'll talk about it in, in a little bit we actually expected UMass to potentially win five games and they ended up uh winning only one and, and you know uh, by it wasn't the game and, against uh Rutgers I could tell you that much that's true <laughs> oh, no. uh, but it, it it's you know they they it, it matters from a betting standpoint because you can you can think okay uh, UMass you know, uh, if we had realized they were going to have a historically bad defense, one, we could have said, OK, almost blind bet against UMass, bet the over because they're giving up eight yards a player or, or whatever it is from a uh, CFF standpoint. You know, if you're looking for matchups, who's playing UMass this year or this week? We saw late in the season, BYU uh, moved a kid over from linebacker to start at running back because they had lost three or four running backs to season-ending injuries, uh, hadn't played running back since high school, goes for 100 yards because they're playing UMass. I was so aggravated with that, by the way. I mean, I I didn't mean to cut you off there, but uh, that was one of those where I was looking at, uh, I believe you, you and I were on the CFF show, Nick, and I was like, Man, you gotta have BYU running backs this week. They're playing UMass. They're gonna go off for a thousand yards, and then uh, lo and behold, they start a damn linebacker at running back and run all over them. <laughs> and, and Northwestern did a similar thing. I mean, it's it's you know, so so I think that uh, one, it helped me. I, I hope, and we certainly don't know yet, but but I did some tweaks to the model to try to capture the the worst of it try to capture you know who's at the at the the 130th ranked team who's the 129th ranked team because i had too high of a floor i think and so i wanted to to be able to extend it out a little bit uh one because you know the way of grading all this stuff is is against the spread and and i want to be able to to put up better numbers at the g5 level so that that's part of it is to try to figure out i think there is some value in figuring out who's going to be 129, who's going to be 130. Yeah. But uh, quick, real quick through the through the defense. Uh, last year, Texas State was one of the most experienced defenses in the country. Uh, that didn't really tell us anything because Texas <laughs> State wasn't. They ended up not being very good. So it's, it's possible that this is something we don't need to pay too much attention to. But – uh, the one team that fit all those categories of 80% of their tackles, 80% tackles for loss, 90% sacks, 85% of their pass breakups is Western Kentucky. And they had a really, really good defense last year, and they have a chance to be really, really good again. On the other end of things, uh, this year, Texas State is uh, is less than 50% of their tackles, less than 40% tackles for loss, less than 40% sacks, less than 50% pass breakups. So the team. Want to bet that- they're better? 
<laughs> like, uh, I don't necessarily see it. It's, it's possible. Hard to be worse, right? <laughs> that, well, but the teams that last year met those marks were Nevada, UAB, who ended up being very good, obviously. UTEP, not good. Akron didn't win a game. And Central Michigan. So kind of a mixed bag. So anyway, on on the other end of things, who are the most ex, you know the most experienced teams uh, coming in with seventy five percent of their tackles seventy five across the board? Uh, Houston Rice and Western Kentucky this year. Uh, so so we already mentioned, of course, the Hilltoppers. Houston, they're very experienced. They brought in a lot of transfers. It's possible they could be a, a, an SMU like team this year. Rice has made. Uh, some improvement, had a really strong end of the season. Is there a chance that they could, you know, maybe uh, take a step and, and look towards a, a potential bowl game? They, they certainly have one of the most experienced defenses in the country. On the flip side, who are the least experienced teams this year? Eastern Michigan, Tulsa, Army, UNLV, and Temple. All those teams return less than 50% of all those categories. Tackles, tackles for loss, sacks, and pass breakups. So if you're looking for who's going to, Who's going to maybe take a nosedive? Who's who's the team that you know you can look to bet the over? You can look your your matchups in CFF. Those might be some defenses to to keep an eye on. And it's a great transition too, Nick, because uh, Army losing production and last year not finishing very well anyway. At least not as good as we thought they were going to finish. They were uh, below five hundred at five and eight. Uh, BYU was the one good independent team. Uh, and we've already talked about Notre Dame. So we're talking about independents that aren't Notre Dame. BYU finished at seven and six, even running line, uh, linebackers at running back at the end of the season. Uh, Liberty, they were eight and five, but not a lot of talent going on there. New Mexico State, two and ten, and UMass, the big disappointment at one and eleven. But BYU ranked fifty-seven. Everybody else, Army ninety-one, Liberty one hundred two. New Mexico State 125 and UMass 130. So um, the the independence from last season, Nick. I mean, what what was it that you saw from some of these teams? Well, the the first thing that that we saw or that I remember, I guess, is is BYU beating Tennessee and and USC, right? So they played Utah tough in the beginning of the season. They uh, or you know, in, in recent years have scheduled. Uh, some big names early in the season, life as an independent, that's when everybody else is playing non-conference games, and then you kind of have to pick and choose towards the end of the year. That's why BYU ended up playing UMass late late in the year. But uh, they, were, they were solid, and, and they were better than our projections expected. Uh, these teams are all tricky for different reasons. BYU is tricky because there's a lot of changeover year to year. A lot of guys will sign with BYU coming out of high school. They might play their true freshman year. They might go on a mission, be gone for a year or two, come back. Uh, this year in particular, it's it's already been uh, a bit difficult to determine you know, who's actually on the roster because a, a handful of guys were granted six years of eligibility. And, and so there's, there's always some trickiness with BYU just actually getting to the to the correct starting point. And so there's somebody that I, I pay a little bit closer attention to than, uh, you know, just your average FBS team because there's different things to keep track of. But uh, we were a little low on BYU and, and we underrated them and perhaps we made a couple of mistakes as far as uh, some of those roster issues. But they jumped up, had a really, really solid year, had some 
good wins. Had some weird uh, weird losses too. They lost to Toledo, who uh, sort of fell off a cliff after that game, but uh, they're always a team that's going to be able to uh, have the ability to, to beat you. I mean, we saw a couple of years ago, they knocked off Wisconsin, a huge win. So uh, they're always going to be a, you know, a tough out for, for anybody army. It, it really seemed like that was going to be them. And, and they did push Michigan. Like a lot of people expected. I remember this time last year, I mean, there was talk should army be a preseason top 20 team. They had come off a, a 10 win season. Uh, they returned a lot for, uh, a service academy. I mean, usually there's more turnover on the roster at, at Army, Air Force, and, and Navy than most teams. So we really expected a lot from Army. We had them favored in 11 re- regular season games, expected them to win uh, between eight and a half and, and nine games on average. But things didn't, didn't you know, fall that way. They had injuries at the quarterback position. Kelvin Hopkins missed some games. Uh, and, you know, they just they, – they didn't quite uh, do the, the, the little things that they needed to do that they had done the, the previous few years and ended up only winning five games. They, they were certainly a disappointment because they played a pretty weak schedule and it looked like they had the opportunity to put up another 10-win season and, and maybe, you know, really make some noise on the national level and, and they would have if they had been able to knock off Michigan. But uh, missed opportunity for RB. It'll be interesting to see if they bounce back. Liberty is hard to, to uh, get a gauge on because they're such a young FBS program talked about last week, coastal Carolina still fit with that. A lot of the players that are on the roster didn't receive ratings from two, four, seven sports coming out of college ended up being, you know, really, really solid players. And, and Liberty had some top end players, especially on offense. Steven Buckshot Calvert had a, an excellent uh, career as a quarterback. Antonio Gandy Golden uh, is going to be, you know, going to be drafted here in a couple of days. So uh, they had some talent. And they they brought in a big name head coach and Hugh Freeze, and and so they're certainly an intriguing team. And and uh, they ended up doing a little bit better than we expected. We only had them favored in four games. Expected them to win five and a half on average, but uh, they ended up beating Georgia Southern in the bowl game and and, and winning eight. Uh, on the other end of things, and, and this is sort of what I was talking about as I was uh, rambling on a little in the, the returning production, but we were too uh, too hesitant maybe to, to put uh, weight New Mexico State and UMass and, and teams like that as far down maybe as they should have been. We probably should not have expected New Mexico State to have been favored in three games to win four and a half on average. Looking back, uh, New Mexico State taught me some things about specifically defense because they returned a pretty good chunk of their uh, production on on defense. They had linebackers that racked up a whole lot, you know, a whole bunch of tackles. So I was giving production points because of that. People in the secondary, a lot of tackles, uh, and was adding you know too much too many points to individual players. So. I learned from that, I think, pulling back a little bit on that. It's harder now, uh, according to the way we do things, to uh, to get production points on defense. Because if, you know, your safeties, your corners are, are racking up a lot of tackles, it's not necessarily a good thing. That was yeah. certainly a, 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 you know, a It's nice a that they make the inference. tackles, but they're called safety for a reason. <laughs> right. So it, it was a bad inference on my 
part when I was starting to build the model, starting to build out the player rating. So New Mexico State in particular served, you know, was valuable to me last year for, uh, I think, helping me fix that bug, if, if that makes sense. And UMass similarly, because they were so bad on defense <laughs> that, you know, that it, 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 I thought they had a chance to be a little bit better and they did have some weird things. I mean, they had a first time head coach. That's always, uh, you never know exactly what you're going to get. They suspended like a dozen guys, uh, one week. And, and so things were a little bit just sort of weird at, at UMass, but once the season started going and, and once it became clear that UMass really should be in the 129, in the 130 uh, range of things. And, that you know, what does that mean? Does that mean they're going to lose by 30? Or does it mean they're going to lose by 50? Uh, I, I, there were some lessons to learn there. So I know that, uh, you know, perhaps not everybody's <laughs> interested in New Mexico State and UMass, but those two teams in particular, I think, uh, help CFB Winning Edge learn a little bit about itself. Well, I think over what you're saying the is that UMass is so bad they change the way you do things. Is that and right? The next yeah. Mm-hmm. Those two teams were so bad. I mean, Xavier, when you're reflecting on 2019 uh, and looking at these independent teams, I just, I'm so excited for your thoughts. Uh, well, what, what would you have to say about these squads from last year? I mean, Liberty um, and BYU were good, but. Yeah, yeah. I, I, that's exactly what I was going to start. I was going to start with the positive. Uh, BYU was a team that, honestly, without a couple of head-scratching loss, Nick, you talk about the Toledo game. I look at the fact that they lost to USF, a team that we all yeah. thought was going to – yeah, they just didn't have the kind of season that you thought they would have after competing and, and beating a USC team. Um, you know, they, they also beat uh, Tennessee, as we alluded to earlier. And they just had some – they didn't. They weren't consistent enough throughout the year um, to warrant – uh, double digits. So seven and six is a perfect example of how they were last year. They were good at some points and bad at some points. And it was really a 50, 50 year for them. Liberty was one of those weird teams. I talked about them earlier. Antonio Gandhi, uh, golden, the, the kid's amazing. I mean, I'm just going to go through a stat line real quick from last year, 79 receptions, 1,396 yards, 10 touchdowns. He scored 10 touchdowns the years previous. Whoever gets him in the draft in particular is going to get an absolute steal. Um, yes, he played at Liberty and lesser competition, but numbers are numbers to me. And when you go over 1,300 yards and go double-digit touchdowns two years in a row at a school like Liberty, I think that adds more to your positive than your negative. Especially that second opinion. year, Xavier. I didn't mean to cut you off, but that second no, year, it's like they know what's coming, and they still can't yeah. stop it. Exactly. And, you know, he didn't drop in receptions. He went up in receptions. He didn't drop in yards uh, average per catch. He went up in that. Like, everything increased even though he was the guy on the team and nobody could stop him, including Georgia Southern, which fun. Thank you for that win, by the way, beating them and, and you know, them losing their bowl game was a nice little treat for me. Um, as far as Army is concerned, I was really hoping Army was going to be better this year. It always is a good thing when Army and Navy are both a good team. It makes that last game of the season really competitive. And they flopped. And that was really disappointing for me because I think and a lot of other college football fans, because we all tuned into the Army-Navy game, and we want to see a good game. And Army just did not come to the table this year, uh, throughout the year, but in particular that game as well. Um, New Mexico State, bad. I mean, I, I don't know what, how else to way to put it. Uh, <laughs> Nick, I think he t- said the best. You know, when you when you redo an algorithm for two teams, you know, I think that kind of. But I will say, I have a bone to pick with you. Why is UMass ranked? And I know you probably can't answer this for me, but why are they ranked one thirty? 
and Akron is ranked 129, and they beat Akron. Aha. That doesn't make sense to me. That's a good question, and that's that's uh, a very interesting one because basically any analytic system that's out there. So I've, I've made reference to other people before. Bill Connolly is SP Plus. Uh, Rob Bowen does Beta Rank. They're they're you know ESPN, FBI. All of those are are. Uh, they they dive deeper than uh, just wins and losses, and, and you look at the underlying stats and, and look at uh, you know people. Those different systems all do things a little bit differently, but uh, all of them recognize that UMass, uh, particularly on defense, w- was so bad that each week the stats uh, that it's kind of hard for me to. to to get the exact point, but uh, when you look at a game based on the stats, you would expect a team to win X percent of the time. And that's, you know, looking back historically, if a team gives up whatever uh, seven yards per play, they're going to lose 93% of the time. That That's probably completely wrong, but it's, it's that sort of thing, right? So you're looking at, at individual stats, whether it's by game, whether it's by season, you know, all those sorts of things. And just the, the way that UMass stacked up, they if they were to play Akron again, all of these systems, ours included, would have expected Akron to win probably by about a touchdown or more, just based on those those underlying stats. Okay. And, and uh, it's it's it, difficult to would it to be easier to say that they were in minutes. more games, Nick, than uh, yeah, that's what you're uh, than um, New Mexico UMass. State was mm-hmm. or UMass? Uh, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh, potentially, that's that's one way of putting it. Yeah, I, I mean, Akron Akron was historically bad in some ways as well. Rushing offense was was part of it, but uh, somebody else would do a better job of, of explaining it. But just sort of the the uh, the quickest way I I think I can say is that if you look at at not just the final score, but you're but you're looking underneath and and based on their uh, yards per play allowed, their points per drive, things like that. Uh, UMass was a weaker team on the field than Akron was, even though they beat, uh, UMass beat Akron. You know, if they were to play that game a hundred times, we would expect Akron to win it more often than not. Okay. Uh, I just think- happened to, they, they played once, we got, we got to see it once, and Akron won. That day, Akron was the better team. But looking at the the entire scope of the season, if we were to do it again, we would not expect Akron to win. If that if that makes sense. Gotcha. Um, well, let's look at what these uh, squads have for 2020 here, because um, you know it's ugly. I'm not going to lie <laughs> here, but BYU is returning their quarterback Zach Wilson, and they have seven returns on offense and five on defense. We've got them ranked at 62, by far the highest not Notre Dame independent team. After that, everyone's post 100. Uh, Army in here at 105, returning six offensive starters and seven on defense, but no quarterback, which is the biggest part of their team. Um, Jabari Law is taking over there. Liberty uh, down here at 115. Of course, they lose their big two pieces in Buckshot, Calvert, and Antonio Ganey-Golden, both gone at uh, five on offense and five on defense. UMass returns a quarterback that started for part of the season and eight returns on offense, only four on defense. 
Uh, so we got them ranked to 127, which honestly could be better for them coming off that <laughs> historically bad season last year. Uh, New Mexico State with only three returning starters on offense and eight or six, excuse me, on defense doesn't suit well as far as experience goes. But once again, you know, bad experience on its way out. And UConn actually has seven returning starters on offense and eight on defense, surprisingly, even though they are having a bit of a mass exodus right now. But we've got them ranked all the way down at 129. So, Nick, what is your outlook for these independent teams coming up for the 2020 season? Well, BYU intrigues me for a lot of the reasons why last year was so interesting. They play uh, some big-name teams early in the year. They play Utah again in the season opener. They play Michigan State, Arizona, Minnesota, Missouri, Houston. Uh, they've been playing Boise State pretty much every year. They finished the season against Stanford. So they have a lot of opportunities to, uh, you know, pick up a big win over over a big name. And, and uh, at least at this point in the season, BYU looks uh, a little bit better than they did last year to to our numbers. Uh, their overall team strength is a, is a little bit lower, but their national ranking is about 10 spots higher. So I think they certainly have a, a chance to have another decent season. And, and our numbers actually project them to win six games and, and uh, has them favored in, uh, I think, seven. So uh, pretty, pretty good year. No, excuse me, five. Uh, but BYU is a team that, that's going to be a pain for, you know, the the – Michigan State for Mel Tucker, that's not going to be an early an easy assignment in week two preparing for BYU because they're bringing back a lot of guys who spent time uh, out of the lineup last year. They have three offensive linemen who have uh, basically, you know, three offensive linemen had season-ending injuries and, and two and a half of those guys were starters, if that makes sense, on in the secondary they had three guys suffer major, major injuries who've started a combined uh, 53 games. Our numbers actually say BYU has zero starters returning in the secondary <laughs> from 2019, but their overall secondary has 78 career starts. So, you know, it's it's just it's one of those things. They were they were good last year, but they weren't at their full strength. And they're they're going to be an interesting team. They had a couple of guys decide to come back for senior. Uh, for their senior years, who could have gone to the NFL, tight end Matt Bushman, who is their number one target, is one of the best tight ends in the country. And then they have a nose guard, Kiris Tonga, who who is 340 pounds, six four, certainly would have would have been uh, in consideration to be drafted, but decided to come back, and he's the highest rated player on their defense. They've got guys in the uh, mid to high. 80s at every level on the defense, and, and Tonga's a, a over a 90. So they've got some some solid players and, and have an opportunity to pick up a couple of uh, decent wins uh, next year and, and should get back to a bowl game. Army is is interesting because they, you know, they missed the mark so much last year, fell so short of expectations. There's a chance that they're going to be underrated. Uh, our numbers, even though we expected them to, uh, you know, be favored in 11 games last year, they're still only ranked 80th according to our uh, power strength, or excuse me, our, our our power rankings, our team strength rankings. So that's a team that, even though they're 105, you know, maybe this is a team, and they play another really really weak schedule. Uh, this is a team that could get back into the 10 win uh, level if everything clicks, if Javari Laws. Is the guy at quarterback? I think that there's a potential he could have a really, really big season if he's able to stay healthy, which he wasn't last year. So 
Army is going to be tricky, and, and they usually lose a lot, but they're bringing back over half their starters on, on both sides of the football, and, and that's pretty good for Army, who's usually having to replace a ton of seniors year after year. Liberty, I think there's going to be a chance for, for a fall-off. Uh, I did mention our numbers don't necessarily capture maybe the true talent of their players because they've got you know juniors and seniors who uh, were not rated by 247 Sports. So maybe our numbers because we just you know we put in the minimum rating when that happens, and if they don't pick up production points, then they're going to be uh, maybe a little lower rated than they should have. We knew Antonio Gandy Golden was going to be so good because he had been uh, had put up huge production point numbers in, in FCS, same with Calvert. So that helped our projection a little bit. But this year, I mean, Malik Willis is probably going to be the starting quarterback. Uh, if Chris Ferguson, who transferred in from Maine, who uh, took him to the playoffs, uh, you know, started 28 games, it's, it's not necessarily certain that Malik Willis is going to be uh, the starter, despite what you know, uh, you might think just looking at, at the roster, but um, uh, we don't necessarily know. You know, we knew more about Calvert than we know really about either of those guys. We, we you know, they're losing their running back, they're, they're starting running back, uh, losing a guy as good as Antonio Gandy Golden. He was one of the highest rated receivers in the country, according to our numbers. So uh, those are going to be big losses, and right now there's not much to replace it. So that's why they're on the, the really far low end as far as returning roster strength. UMass might be better. They uh, they are basically treading water as far as roster strength goes. Uh, they got a, a big, uh, sort of a big boost when Bilal Ali, their returning, uh, or their running back, who entered the transfer portal basically right at the end of the, the 2019 season, uh, recently said that, that he's coming back to UMass. So that that's big. That gives them something to build around on offense. Andrew Brito, who is probably the smallest starting quarterback in college football, he's 5'8", 170. Uh, that's what he's listed on the roster. So there's a my chance. My same he's- height, <laughs> but not my same weight. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that's, that's, uh, he, he has some experience. He started six games last year. There's, there's potential for growth and, and they really couldn't be any worse on defense so there's a chance that that UMass is going to be better uh New Mexico State they lost their two-year starting quarterback to the transfer portal they do bring in a Michigan transfer at running back Omari Samuels who's a local kid he's he's from New Mexico uh and and I know that the coaching staff there have read a little bit about how excited they are about him expect him to be the focal point like uh you know they had they had uh what was his name uh Jason Huntley uh, sort of did everything, caught the ball out of the backfield, was a, a weapon in special teams. I'm not sure if Amari Samuels is, is quite as uh, skilled all around, but I expect him to be a big, big part of that offense. So that's probably a name to know. But, you know, the rest of it, they're, they're really uh, starting over at a, at a lot of places. And, and it seems like the coaching staff there is pretty optimistic, especially about this offense, but they're obviously, you know, they see things that, that we don't because they don't have a quarterback that's appeared in a college game at, at a, you know, division one level. Uh, they only returned one guy with any major experience at, at uh, receiver. The offensive line is in transition. So uh, they have a chance to, to be one of these bottom two or three teams, uh, and, but they're one spot ahead of UConn, which, has had that mass exodus, but they, you know, they, they bring back some experience. 
Uh, Xavier has, has said it a few times, though. Experience doesn't necessarily, uh, you know, if, if it was bad before, I mean, experience doesn't necessarily uh, cover that cover that up. And and they did lose some of their best players, the starting offensive linemen and, and uh, the, the safety we talked about earlier today, Coyle. But uh, one player in particular that that I think is is really quite good is running back Kevin Mensa. He's started 23 games, played in 34. He, he's put up some good, good numbers in the past. And, and you know, offensively, they have a chance to, to make some noise. Cameron Ross is a really intriguing receiver who, who did some good things last year, put up some good numbers. So uh, UConn has a chance to, you know, suffer life now as an FBS independent uh, their schedule is going to be tough. Illinois, Virginia, Indiana, Ole Miss, North Carolina. Uh, but, you know, they get to play oh, UMass. Lord. They get to play Old Dominion. <laughs> so so uh, it, it's going to be interesting. I think they have a chance to be better uh, on the field, sort of those underlying metrics like I was talking before about uh, UMass. I think UConn might actually end up with a, the same record or maybe even a worse record this year, but would be better if you were to, to look at their overall, you know, how they're playing, their team performance. It's going to be interesting in the way uh, witnessing a car wreck is interesting, right? Wow. Is that what you would say? For wow. <laughs> I mean, they're not good. I'm sorry. I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to, uh, to to get a metaphor here, but obviously maybe mine was a little bit mean. So, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, they're going to be, they're going to be rough to watch Xavier. So, I mean, look, um, I, I would be surprised if what I just said was the worst thing said about these teams after <laughs> Xavier is done uh, laying out his expectations for these independent teams for 2020. Um, well, first off, let's, of course, start with the positives. BYU is a team that I think honestly could do really well next year. You know, they're playing a Utah team that loses a lot of talent to start off the year, and that could be a huge win for them. And, and unlike last year, maybe they take – the, the big win like last year's win over Tennessee and actually allowed that to catapult themselves in the next in the weeks after. Uh, I don't know how they'll fare against Michigan State, Arizona State, and Minnesota. We'll have to see what those teams look like. Uh, but BYU is a team that obviously brings back one of my favorite quarterbacks in Zach Wilson. I just love his game. I love his style. And I think he he reminds me a lot of Taysom Hill when he was when he was a freshman and sophomore. Yes, I was old enough to remember that. Uh, he, although he was in college for like seven years. Um, you know, and I, I really think that he's gonna be a guy who takes that next step uh, from from what he did last year. I think he was pretty pretty darn good last year. When you move to Army, this is a team that defensively is what they relied on last year. And I think that bringing back seven defensive starters bodes well for them. Um, playing them, uh, watching them firsthand against Georgia State last year in the rain, it was like watching like what I, what I would think 1930s football was all over again. <laughs> you know, people were just smacking each other for, for you know, 60 minutes of football and really killing each other as much as they possibly could. Um, and their style of play is slow. It's boring. It's dull, but it's effective. Um, and I think that, you know, for that style to be effective, it takes a good defense that can hold other teams under their yearly average. And I think that with the defense that's coming back, it's barely possible to do so. Um, when you move to Liberty, once again, this is a team I don't have the privy of watching all the time. I'm sorry, Liberty fans. Um, and I honestly don't know. Um, when you look at this team, obviously we talked about the talent that they're going to be losing this year. Um, but even Nick's numbers can't really keep up with them because of what they bring in every season. And so I think that they could easily shock us and go, you know, eight and five again, and they could easily shock us and go, you know, four and eight. Uh, and I don't, I don't think that, you know, we would be too surprised about anything that happens this year, unless they go undefeated. Um, now let's move to the basement of the entirety of college football. 
Um, when we talk <laughs> about UMass, you know, hopefully Scott gives us another UMass game to watch this year uh, so we can <laughs> see how they look this year. Um, you know, offensively, they weren't great last year, but that was the only positives about this team last year. they play year, so Rutgers again? Eight. Can we watch that one? That one was fun. <laughs> they, they play UConn week one, guys. I, oh, I man. It's on, a, watch it. it's on a Thursday night, so. I, so, so you actually watch. That's week one. I mean, honestly, that might be the most watchable game because there's no NFL game on that Thursday. Uh, so maybe maybe that's the time to watch them. They also the play New Mexico, Akron, FIU, New Mexico State, and oh, wow, they have a, they have an opportunity. Wow. Wait, you know what? You might might actually win more than two games. Winnable gonna, games. Gonna, yeah, they definitely have winnable games on their schedule, but that doesn't mean they're necessarily going to win them. Of course, I uh, think every other on. team that sees them also thinks winnable games. I, yeah. I, well, I was. I would say we have UMass favored over New Mexico State by four points. Uh, home field advantage. The, the games at, at UMass. Wow. Uh, we have Albany favored by uh, a little less than one point over UMass. <laughs> <laughs> the, <laughs> oh man, that's tough. Uh, <laughs> uh, let's just go ahead and go down to UConn. I mean, this is a team that is having you know a Noah's Ark like exodus away from their ball club at the moment. Uh, but they're probably the most talented team here outside of BYU and the independents, obviously not counting Notre Dame. Um, but, you know, who knows what UConn's going to look like as an independent team? You know, they sucked when they were inside of, of a conference. But, you know, now they have the opportunity to kind of give themselves some cupcake games. You know, you look at their schedule. They, they play teams like Old Dominion, possible win. Maine, possible win. San Jose State, they can win that game as well. Uh, the two games I just talked about earlier, Old Dominion and Maine, are both at home. These are, te- these are very winnable games for a UConn team that should, should do better as an independent than they did inside of a conference now that they're not forced to get smacked eight times a year. So, you know, I think things are going to look up for this UConn program. They're going to get That's smacked most- by Maine. Maine is going <laughs> to kill them. <laughs> Maine's pretty good uh, lower-level team, right, Nick? So yeah, they went, uh, they went to the FCS semifinals couple years ago, or maybe even the championship game. So, uh, and, but then their quarterback transferred to Liberty. So, right, uh. right. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, look, I, I this these independent teams that they, they're tough to pick. Um, but but I think I think these guys did an excellent job of kind of previewing uh, what would you uh, what you should be expecting uh, from these squads. Uh, I, some of them have a chance to be pretty good. And some of them do have a chance to be, of course, better than we expect. It's kind of hard to uh, pinpoint. Would you say that, um, Nick, overall, like uh, G5 conferences are harder to line up or independents are are harder to line up as far as preseason predictions go? Uh, They're they're both they're both pretty hard. I mean, our our numbers I've, I've been. Uh, pretty open about how we're we're pretty good at the P5 level, and, and there are some areas where we've really uh, put up numbers I'm proud of, you know, against the spread and in uh, con- certain conferences, certain situations. The G5, the last couple of years, showed that I really had some work to do, and and I I've made some tweaks. It's been more of a uh, more of a priority to try to figure out teams at the at the lower end and, and ways of of truly 
capturing talent because some of these guys, you know, are, are late bloomers. Some of them are guys that had injury issues in, in high school that, you know, opportunities dried up because maybe they got hurt as juniors. And, and by the time their senior year rolled around, most of the P5 classes were filled up. You know, there are transfers getting second opportunities, whether it's a guy coming down from a, a power five level or a guy uh, coming up from the FCS level. And, and things can, you know, you can be, uh, you can miss things, and and so it's 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 difficult to just sort of be able to quantify everything. It's a little bit more difficult at, at the G five level than it is at the P five level, and and so have put some time into trying to figure it out. Hopefully, uh, we we've got it, you know, a little closer to right this year. Uh, but I'm I'm very curious to watch how it plays out because I want to know, you know, have I, have I made some uh, tweaks that, that got us a little bit closer to, to getting these teams figured out. All right. Well, that is going to wrap it up uh, for us today. And next week, we're going to be talking about uh, all conference teams, starting with the SEC. Is that correct, Nick? Yeah, I thought that would give us a good chance to talk. You know, we've, we've done some broad uh, strokes with uh, teams as we're doing our look-aheads, this will give us a chance to dive a little bit more into individual players who were some of the most exciting players that we're looking forward to watching, maybe some breakout guys. And uh, I think doing preseason all-conference teams by, you know, taking one conference each week gives us an opportunity to, to do that. And look for some tweets because we're going to involve the listening audience too. So uh, look for those. But uh, remember, you can follow us all on Twitter at Bogman Sports for me, at Xavier underscore Trish, T-R-I-C-H-E for Xavier, and at CFB Winning Edge for Nick. And we will see you guys next week. Take it easy, everybody. The CFB Winning Edge podcast is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. We understand times may be tough for some of our listeners during this time of uncertainty. But if you're able, now is also a great time to support people who are doing great work. If you would like to help secure the long-term health of our show and CFB Winning Edge as a whole, please consider joining us at patreon.com slash CFB winning edge.